If you're already a bit of a germaphobe, you may not enjoy today's episode. Because the creepy crawlies are on the march. Bacteria, viruses, insects, even fungi. Some fear this army of pestilence is poised to take over the planet. Are you ready? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, welcome to Signs of the Times Radio for another week. And here with me in the studio is the author of July's cover story, Julie Hoey. How are you, Julie? Did I pronounce that correctly? Hoey? You did. Hoey is perfectly right. Yes. Excellent. And I'm not too bad. I do have a cold, but otherwise I'm fine. (laughs) That's actually quite ironic because the title of your article is a very scary, large green pestilence, superbugs, plagues, and humanity's future. And you've brought a pestilence into the studio with you today. Is is this a show and tell opportunity? Exactly. That's right. I thought I would stick with the theme. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Julie, you're a high school teacher in the the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, is is that right? Yes, I'm actually a teacher librarian now, so my specialty is looking at research and and finding our way through the plethora of information that's around, but my background is in science and maths teaching, and I was also once a dietitian. Oh, wow, okay. So you really have a a well-rounded sort of view of the sciences, the, the practical, the theoretical, and yeah, and yeah, the applied. Yeah, oh, that sounds really good. Now, it's really, I guess, interesting that that we are looking, or that your article does look at this whole issue of infectious diseases, because it seems like they've kind of fallen off the radar a little bit. Because for the last several decades, maybe even a, I don't know, a century now, it seems that we're not sort of talking about smallpox and measles and polio and that sort of stuff anymore. It's kind of been dealt with in, in the West at least. And instead now we have this whole range of lifestyle diseases, you know, the uh, cardiac disease and stroke and diabetes and all these sorts of things that we often, you know, bring on ourselves be- because of our lifestyle choices and our, you know, sit in the car, sit in the office, you know, we, we're very sedentary. But, it, but you in this article sort of telling us that, hey, infectious diseases are still an issue. They, they need our, our attention. Why is that? Yes, that's the thing. Infectious diseases, particularly in developed countries, we, we did think we kind of had them knocked on the head and, and dealt with. Mm. But that's not quite the case. And particularly the problem is that obviously in other countries where they haven't had the same funding as us and the same public health initiatives and the same ability to really get into the whole population, mm. infectious diseases and the traditional infectious diseases that we thought we had dealt with, they weren't really properly dealt with. And and with the increase in things like travel, so many people now are traveling. Mm. Um, You just imagine the thousands of of planes full of people that are traveling every day. They're they're moving these diseases around the world much more quickly than they ever used to be able to. And our populations have increased as well massively. Mm. So Mm. the people that are bringing infectious diseases back across borders are bringing them into highly populated areas where they can very quickly spread if they're highly contagious, which some of these um, diseases are. Yeah, and, and I guess when you say that, I mean, a few years back we actually crossed this line where now... 50% 50% of the world's population lives in cities. So it's not only that there are more people on the planet, it's also that more of us are living in close quarters to one another, which of course is a hotbed for 
you know, contagion. Exactly. And one of the diseases that we're concerned about these days is is measles. That's becoming, um, getting a little bit of a foothold back in, in Australia, in America, in places like that where we really should have been able to get rid of it completely. And every time you, you hear an alert, there's been two alerts in the past week in New South Wales mm. about people who've come back from overseas travel infected with measles. And they list all the places that those people went and spent time before they realised they were infectious. You know, and it's it's all these shopping centres and places where there's just thousands of people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's one of the big, big causes. One of the big contributing factors is just population issues and, and travel. Yeah. And I guess things like, um, you know, tuberculosis or, or malaria, we often see as very much, you know, developing world sort of diseases. But I guess we have to watch out for those things, perhaps more than we think we do sometimes. Yeah, particularly something like malaria, we're um, seeing changes in in climate and um, Mm. the spread of climatic conditions that favour the mosquitoes that spread malaria. So those those mosquitoes and malaria is moving into regions that we haven't previously seen them. Mm. And, you know, in Australia, we haven't really had to think a lot about malaria but it is probably, you know, something that we're going to need to pay more attention to. We do have uh, mosquito-borne illnesses within Australia, mm. um, and yeah, it's just uh, climatic conditions are contributing to the spread of that sort of a, those sort of illnesses. Yeah, that that's really fascinating. I mean, I lived in Cairns for four years, and dengue fever is sort of you know a constant sort of issue that is is in people's minds there. And you know, we we knew when we were there that we had to sort of get around our backyard and get rid of any little reservoirs of water that might, you know, harbour mosquito larvae and that that sort of thing. They've got a whole tropical health unit there that's looking at this this all the time. But the climate change thing, that is really strange. So what, what you're saying is, I mean, a lot of these diseases historically have been confined to sort of equatorial, sort of tropical kind of areas. But now with global warming, the influence of those tropics is coming, I guess, in our part of the world further south or in the northern hemisphere further north. So that, that's what you're saying. So diseases that used to be in the tropics are now moving towards more what moderate sort of climates. Yeah, and certainly um, the other way that they're moving is up into the highlands more. So mm-hmm. I, I lived in Papua New Guinea for a while. Mm-hmm. And when I was living in Papua New Guinea, I was in the highlands. And mm-hmm. while I lived up there, I knew that I didn't need to worry about malaria. I didn't need to take any tablets. I didn't need to cover up or wear a mosquito repellent or anything mm-hmm. like that. Because the altitude is higher and therefore the weather's cooler It's cooler. That's yeah. right. But what we're seeing in, um, particularly in some of the Asian and African countries, is that malaria is moving up into the cooler highland regions. So, yeah, it's kind of moving in all sorts of different directions. Wow. Okay. So, I guess in the same way that we see sort of cane toads <laughs> exactly. sp- spreading. Exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The issue that you focus on your in your article, though, is the issue of what's be, what are being called superbugs. Can you tell us about that? Just give us a sort of a layperson's you know, introduction. Yeah, so a superbug is a generally a bacteria, it could be a virus, but we focus on bacteria because we've we had these wonderful things called antibiotics that kill bacteria. And mm-hmm. when we get an infection, we take antibiotics that kill the bacteria and cure our infection. Um, but what what we've obviously found is that there are some bacteria that have become resistant to the antibiotics we've used against them. Mm-hmm, mm. So we, we go to the next level and then we go to the next level and so on. There are some bacteria that we have run out of bacteria um, antibiotics that, that work on them. Mm-hmm. And if you become infected by those bacteria that are resistant to the appropriate antibiotic, it's really, really hard to control okay. the infection and people, you know, they lose 
toes and limbs and things because yeah, of those yeah. infections. That's horrific. Now, uh, Julie, uh, we did manage very happily to sidestep the whole vaccination debate when you, you, know, you were talking about measles and things. But I think there's another hot button sort of topic here. And that's when we're talking about, you know, how these superbugs develop, because I guess the language we often hear in mainstream communication you know, from scientists and in the mainstream media is that these organisms are adapting or they're evolving. This is the sort of language that, that we're using. I wonder, though, is is this really evolution happening or is it that there is a diverse population of bacteria there already and when you apply the antibiotic, it kills, say, the 99% of that population which is not resistant to that um, antibiotic, but that 1%, which before was a small minority, then becomes the only bacteria there is. So it's not as, I mean, as a population, it adapts, absolutely, but that's not the same thing as evolution, is it? I mean, you're a science teacher. I don't know how much you've got into this. Mm, Yeah, so um, there are a few different elements to what allows a bacteria to become a superbug and to become resistant. And and it's definitely Mm. true that within a population you may have, you know, limited number of individuals that have an innate resistance to the antibiotic. Mm. They're the ones that survive. They go on to produce the next population that is then resistant to the antibiotic. So that is one of the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that in bacteria, their genetic material is coded on RNA, which is similar to but different to DNA. Mm -hmm. Obviously, DNA is a... um, uh, double helix, we probably all know that. Mm. We've seen lots of pictures of the diagrams and that a, sort of a, thing. A, a double helix for us normal people is a twisted ladder. That's right. Yes, yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Twisted ladder, that's right. RNA is a little bit different to that. It's just one big long kind of circle, although it's all kind of messed up like spaghetti mm-hmm. inside the cell. Yep. But another really big difference between them is that DNA, when it's replicating, has a checking and correcting process. Mm -hmm. So it checks for mistakes as it's replicating itself, and if it finds a mistake, it fixes it. Whereas RNA doesn't really have that ability. Mm -hmm. So bacteria, when they replicate, they actually are prone to a lot more mistakes and mutations. And as we Mm -hmm. know, most mutations are not beneficial in any way, Mm -hmm. but they definitely do have a massive capacity for changes to their genetic material because they don't have that checking and and correcting process. The other thing to do with bacteria is that sometimes parts of their genetic material can sort of become separated from the main molecule. And so Mm -hmm. you've got these little tiny parts of the RNA in the cell but separate. Mm. They're called plasmids. Plasmids. I don't think I said Mm. that very clearly. Mm. And they actually can be transferred across from one bacteria to another. To a neighbouring bacteria. So they can potentially share beneficial genes with the current population Mm. rather than waiting for that to trickle down into the future populations. Wow, Um, okay. Yeah. So that They're incredibly adaptable, aren't they? Just really fascinating for such small, simple very uncomplicated organisms compared to how complex we are. Yep. Yeah, that's just incredible. Yeah, you, you have a really interesting quote in your article that's um, where someone says it's insects and bacteria that rule the world. And yep. I guess we can understand why when we see, you know, these in- incredible... They're just so tenacious. Yeah, yep. wow. Mm. And, I mean, we, we've got a little info box in the article that actually says, uh, that suggests that it's we also have antibiotic-resistant 
fungus as well, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> so it's it's not only bacteria that could fall into this sort of superbug category. So so in a in a hospital or, or a medical setting, I mean you tell you tell this retell this incredible story about Matthew Ames in, in your article. What what's the impact of of superbugs? Well, I guess the thing with Matthew Ames is that the bacteria that caused his problems and, and he lost um, all four of his limbs in an effort to save his life, which miraculously wow. worked, the bacteria that infected him actually wasn't a superbug. It, it was a bacteria that could have very easily been treated with penicillin or amoxicillin, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't recognised in time that that's what was going on with him and that that's oh, wow. the issue that he had. So it just got a foothold. I mean, it released toxins into the bloodstream. The Blood cells were damaged and ineffective, so Mm. his body organs weren't getting oxygen, so they started dying, releasing more toxins into the bloodstream and so on. So it really set up a cascade of events that was Mm. Mm. very difficult to arrest. And, um, yeah, he was quite lucky to have survived. Mm. In a hospital setting, though, people are already sick. Their immunity is quite often low. Mm. You've got all sick people around you and... With all those sick people around you, hospitals are very careful about hygiene. There's lots of cleanliness and lots of mm, antibiotic mm. use and all that sort of thing. So you, you do tend to get a lot of this um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria producing because they're so exposed to it. Those that survive mm, are mm. the ones that are that are resistant. Is, is, um, is another factor, Julie, the, the fact that hospitals are incredibly disinfected places – and that, I mean, as, as we were saying before about bacteria, if, if you are constantly wiping out all the bacteria over and over again with disinfectants, th- that tiny little population that may be resistant is actually encouraged in, in that setting. Is, mm. is, is our focus on hospital hygiene possibly backfiring in, in some ways in creating these superbugs? Yes, to some extent, um, that's exactly what it is. It's not just the hospital use of antibiotics, but definitely the hospital cleanliness and hygiene. Mm. Having said that... Um, I was listening to a podcast just a couple of days ago about a uh, situation at John Hunter Hospital up in Mm. Newcastle Mm. where they actually couldn't get hold of their regular antibiotics. There was some sort of a production issue and so they had to use a different antibiotic that was similar and they felt that it would probably do the same job. Um, I think it was maybe not as broad spectrum Mm. and what they found was that while they were using that, they had a massive reduction in people getting infected with antibiotic-resistant infections. Uh-huh. So just by mixing it up a bit, having a bit of this and a bit of that, you can sort of outsmart the bacteria in, in some ways and sort of hit them from all directions. Yeah, I think part of what was happening was maybe what they were generally using was quite a broad-spectrum antibiotic, and mm-hmm. so it actually knocks out all your good bacteria as well as, you know, it sort of knocks everything out. And um, it actually made me think of a, a verse in the Bible where it says, you know, if you clean out a uh, someone's life or clean out a home or whatever and mm-hmm. don't replace it with anything. It's just left empty for other bad things to come mm-hmm. in. It's a power and vacuum, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's a it's a bacteria vacuum and you sort of knock everything out and it's just a big empty space waiting to be reinfected or mm-hmm. repopulated. Mm-hmm. So, but one of the things that they mention in that podcast, one of the two big issues that we have in hospitals, one is MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or golden staph is mm-hmm. what most people know it. Yep. And they've made significant inroads into arresting that issue just by hand-washing protocols, mm. which I was really surprised to hear because we've known the importance of hand-washing and 
hand washing has been something that's really big in hospitals that's, for that's, decades. That's like you know. Florence Nightingale and the Crimean War in what, what was that the early 1900s? Exactly. Or, uh, uh, yeah. wow. But they've obviously you know made some improvements and tweaked the hand hand washing protocols and have made significant inroads. So even though we are one part of it is that we're over hygienic and and mm. over use of antibiotics. On the other hand, just simple things like making sure we're washing hands properly and enough mm-hmm. has made a significant impact. Yeah, yeah. Looking globally, Julie, I mean, we have seen in the last few decades, we've seen some nasty Ebola outbreaks. We've seen the H1N1, what was that, the bird flu, bird flu, mm-hmm. bird flu virus. Um, am, am I missing some? Um, Zika. <laughs> oh, Zika, of mm. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's another mosquito-borne disease that was in South America mainly. But mm. yeah, so... This is a global issue, isn't it? It's not just an issue in in hospitals. This has been an issue among populations. Is this a concern for public health authorities worldwide? Yeah, the World Health Organization definitely recognises these sorts of bacterial and insect-borne illnesses as uh, serious health problems. Mm. The Ebola outbreak that hit the news a few years ago was a really big one. Ebola's actually been out there and there have been outbreaks for couple of decades at least, but just small outbreaks every now and then. The one that hit the news was a a massive one. There was about 28,000 cases. And Mm, and around 11,000 people died, yeah? Yeah. and um, horrific. There's a current Ebola outbreak in the uh, Democratic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's, it's, they're not getting under control as quickly as they'd like to, but it's not you know, it's not massive like the last one, so we're not really mm. hearing about it very much. But, well, but they're, they're mm. having a war. I mean, they've got a refugee crisis exactly. there. It's a really complicated situation in, yep. in the DRC right now. So I imagine that wouldn't help the situation at all. And that's exactly what we do see, where we see these sort of problems. Most of the time it's in, you know, poor countries that don't have the kind of resourcing and mm-hmm. um, public health efforts that we have. And, yeah, complicated by all sorts of issues like war, poverty, climate, you know, all those sorts of things. So it's something we can't afford to let fall off our radar. What happens in those sort of countries does ultimately come back, you know, more and more. It's coming back to affect our, mm. ourselves. Yeah, we, we're all connected, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, with all that travel and everything going on. Wow, mm. wow. So, I mean, I guess the temptation would be to look at all this stuff and say, oh my goodness, the, the bugs are winning. It's all over for humanity and to sort of feel hopeless. Can you relate to that? And do you see as they're being any kind of solution or, or a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, it, it, it can be very overwhelming um, if you focus on all that's going wrong and how tenacious these little creatures are. Mm-hmm. It can seem very bleak. There's a, there's a quote in the article, a, a journalist, Brian Calvert, said that when he realised what we've done to the earth and how different things that we've done have actually created these problems, mm. that... Um, he felt sad and guilt and and mourning for a loss yet to come. Mm. And it can be very easy to feel hopeless and overwhelmed Mm. and like there's nothing we can do. I think there is cause for hope, though, from a few different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, tell us about that. So certainly from a biblical perspective, the Bible, there's a very strong theme throughout the Bible that there are better times coming and mm. there will be a time when everything is put right. Mm. The Bible in Revelation and in other places in the New Testament talks about 
in the new earth where there'll be no pain, no death, no sorrow, no crying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Bible also warns us that, hey, you know, the world is headed for some tough times. I mean, that's where we got the title of our article from, Pestilence, mm. you know, the, the mm. King James Version of the Bible, you know, reading through Matthew 24, the signs of the end, or the signs of the times, as we like to say, you know, points to pestilence as being one of these possible sort of disasters. But as you say, the Bible says, hey, that's not the end of the story. Mm. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and I think just having that there in the Bible uh, in some ways is comforting that you say, well, the Bible said these sort of things were going to happen. Mm. So, so that's it, good. We're on track to the, yeah. the right end. It's not and, unexpected um, either. It's not like, oh, my goodness, this came out of left field. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. right. I, I probably just have to mention here one um, thing that I always think about is the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat production, which mm-hmm. has a song in it where they say, don't give up, Joseph, fight till you drop. We we read the book and you come out on top. Mm-hmm. And I always think about that in terms of the Bible, that yeah. we've read the book and we know that we come out on top. We mm-hmm. know that everything is going to be okay in the end. Yeah. Um, and that just gives us an underlying hope. It gives us a worldview that says... Yes, we expect that this is going to happen, but we know ultimately there's mm, going to be mm. a good ending. I mean, so, sometimes, I guess, you know, Christians in particular are, are accused of an attitude, hey, you know, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just dig ourselves a concrete bunker, fill it full of canned goods. We'll just sort of huddle down there and wait for the, you know, all these disasters to pass, maybe even, you know, help a little with um, helping it along now and again by, you know, using up more of the world's resources and trashing the planet. I don't get the sense that's that's your, your perspective. Yeah, no. In, in Genesis, it talks about God creating the earth and actually asking us to, to rule over the earth. And, mm. and when scholars look at that and interpret it, they, they generally say that was God asking us to be wise custodians. He wanted mm. us to mm. look after the earth. And in Revelation, there's a verse where God is called upon to destroy those who have destroyed the earth. Wow. And when Jesus was on earth, he did his best to help people and do, do good. Mm. Um, Including people with sicknesses and, and infections. That's yeah, right. Yeah. You know, the um, leprosy and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the example that he said and the verses that are in the Bible definitely don't suggest that we should just sit back and wait it out. Mm-hmm. And, that, and definitely that we shouldn't be contributing to it any more than we can help. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so definitely from okay. a Christian point of view, we should be uh, making efforts to help Um, the situation and to help individuals who are suffering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, you said there's hope at a number of different levels. The first one is biblical. You've you've covered that pretty well. What are the other levels? I think there is a lot of scientific research going on and a lot of scientific and medical efforts at dealing and tackling these these problems. People are coming up with really novel ways of approaching things. Mm -hmm. There is a push to try and discover new antibiotics. They keep saying, you know, we haven't discovered or created any new antibiotics in over 30 years. Mm -hmm. But there are also people coming at it from different directions. So even just this morning, I read an article about some researchers who have discovered some old medicines that were used in World War II. And I can't even remember what they were used for. They, they weren't specifically used as antibiotics and they're not antibiotics. Mm. But what they're saying is they help to manage the symptoms that the, uh, I think they were particularly talking about influenza, looking mm. at the, the current flu um, problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and flu, we, I mean, we sometimes think flu is no big deal, but I think we forget that what in 1918, about what, up to 100 million people you know, died of the Spanish flu. You know, that was an incredible ac- epidemic. I mean, it can be horrific. Yeah, and th- our current flu season is is really, you know, ringing a lot of alarm bells. There are there are healthy people 
mm. dying who are not, you know, old and already facing health issues or not really mm. young with wow. very immature um, immune systems, you know. Yeah, yeah. There are healthy teenagers getting the flu and dying and that is very scary. Yeah, yeah. So we, we definitely, you're right, um, we can't be complacent about things like the flu. This medicine that the researchers are looking at was actually just treating the symptoms and the things that the flu does to you that make you die. So rather mm -hmm. than trying to get rid of the bacteria, which do eventually, your, your own immune system well, does it's, eventually... It's a bacteria or, or a virus, the flu? Uh, that's true, it is a yeah, virus, a virus, that's virus, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's one different angle that they're taking. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of different angles in terms of scientific research in general mm -hmm. that are being taken that people are, are looking at different ways of thinking about the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's to me, gives me a lot of hope that there really is other ways of thinking about the problem and solving mm, it. Mm. Oh, that's, mm. that, that, that's fair enough, Julie. I mean, but I guess, I mean, you, you're a you know, science teacher. I, I'm not, but neither of us are scientific researchers or public health officials. So is there anything, are there any practical things that, that we can do sort of faced with this, you know, faced with this invasion from, you know, from the microscopic world and insects and stuff. Is, is there anything positive that, that we can do? Anything practical we can do? Yeah, so I guess there's um, things we can do at different levels. On a personal level, if you're trying to keep yourself healthy and really want to keep your immune system boosted, there's three things I recommend. And mm -hmm. I will just say this is the first time I've been sick in 18 months. <laughs> but... Obviously, eating well, you know, eating lots of good food that helps to, you know, boost your, your mm, immune system mm. and not having lots of unhealthy food that actually drags down your immune system. Yeah, so, I think so we, whole food, plant-based diet. Definitely your fruits yeah. and veggies and that sort of thing. Yeah. And not having lots of sugary foods because that kind of drains the store, so to speak. Yep. It takes a lot of nutrients to metabolize sugar and mm -hmm. you, you're then sort of depleting your stores of those nutrients mm. and, and this, antioxidants. This is a qualified nutritionist speaking people, <laughs> so yeah, listen up. That's right. The other two things that are really significant at boosting your immune system, which people may not realize, one is getting enough sleep, so you're seven to eight hours mm. a night for adults. Yeah, often overlooked. Absolutely. And getting inadequate sleep very quickly harms your immune system and then mm -hmm. de um, depresses it. And the other thing that is really good at boosting your immune system is getting regular exercise. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. So just, you know, there's three simple things mm -hmm. that obviously are good in general, but also boost your immune system. So yeah. for, on a personal point of view, and obviously people can do their own research and decide whether or not they do want to take, you know, multivitamins or supplements of any kind mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I heard someone on the radio this morning saying celery juice you know, <laughs> boosts, right. boosts my immunity. It's a amazing and uh, you know good, that's right. good good on her i mean at least you're you're being hydrated and i imagine that's another good thing stay hydrated like mm. keep your system flushing through that can often deal with a, a lot of nasties can't it that's right yeah yep. going beyond ourselves and looking mm -hmm. outside of our own personal health yeah you know we can obviously do things like um financially support efforts to help other people you know quite we, we may mm, not be yeah. in careers or at a stage of our life where we can be making a personal impact but you know financially we can support various agencies and organizations uh, NGOs and things like that mm. so, um, so agencies that are making on a the difference mm. um, in things like the an Ebola outbreak or stuff like that okay yeah, yeah. that's that's fair enough I like that's that. right there's two pillars to the scientific um, approach mm -hmm. and one pillar is to be really rigorous and mm. hard and look at things you know, we, we talk about evidence-based approaches and we, we want to look for good, hard evidence and not sort of go running down a road, mm. spending money on things and, and putting effort and energy into things that haven't been, you know, well-researched mm. and have good and properly evidence. properly tested, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sure. But the other one that I think 
to some extent is being forgotten, that is actually to have a very open mind to crazy, wild ideas. Mm -hmm. And I feel in some ways in this day and age, there are a lot of loud voices that shout down the crazy, wild ideas. Mm -hmm. I don't think they should just be accepted because they sound good. Mm -hmm. They still need to be rigorously tested. Mm. But we need to be open to testing some of the crazy, wild ideas. Yeah, you've you've got to take them seriously in the first place in order to go to the effort of testing them, don't Mm. you? Well, that's what science is about. It's about looking for answers and Mm -hmm. You know, we have many, many examples where the answers have been in places that we didn't expect them to be. Mm. And I guess that comes back to what I was mentioning earlier about the human body. You know, there's things we found out about the way our body works and and stuff that's going on in there, even in terms of the bacteria in our intestines and how that, you know, they produce fatty acids that are important for our brain development, for young children's brain development. Who would have have ever thought Mm. that the bacteria inside our intestines was important to a, a child's brain developing properly. Mm. Well, I mean, they, they always say that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach, so I, I guess that's a similar idea. Yeah, that's right. The, the way for a healthier brain is also through your, through your stomach and gut, perhaps. Exactly, <laughs> because eating the right kind of food encourages the right kind of bacteria. Yeah. But, you know, that's just one example of how there are just incredible things out there that we would never have imagined, mm-hmm. and we need to be open to the fact. And you know, I really encourage young people who are maybe interested in science or even not yet interested in science mm-hmm. to, you know, have that hope and say, I might be able to make a difference. You mm-hmm. know, I, I can go into this, into a science career, into a medical career, and I might be able to make a, a big difference. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic, Julie. Look, you've given us a, a lot to think about today and uh, a lot of things to perhaps, you know, check out and, and Google from reputable sources only. Because <laughs> <laughs> there is a there is a lot of sort of, uh, I guess, speculation out there, isn't there? A lot of people who sound dead certain about things they really don't know a whole lot about. But no, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing with us on Signs of the Times Radio. I'm very happy to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.